Today, we are jumping into a brand new series in the book of Colossians. Colossians is a letter written by the ancient missionary and apostle extraordinaire Paul to a group of Christians in the city of Colossae, and they are in somewhat of a mess uh, theologically. They are being assaulted by a false teaching most would call it Gnosticism, and we'll unpack it uh, a little bit more as we go through the book, but ba- basically just a very quick overview. Um, it was a kind of a mashup of a little bit of ancient Judaism, a little bit of philosophical nonsense at the time, and basically they had just constructed this idea that God could not have anything to do with matter, and so he through a series of emanations, that's right, like he put himself on the you know, divine photocopier, and he just copied and copied and copied and copied and formed all these little gods, quote-unquote. By the time they got to the end, that's who was responsible for creating the world. And because it was associated with physical matter, and their fake god couldn't be associated with physical matter because that would make him evil, the god that created the world was evil, and therefore, Jesus was just a phony, and therefore, the longer I get telling this, the more absurd and ridiculous it sounds. But that is what had taken root kind of in this city of Colossae. Some of these Colossian Christians had started to believe this nonsense, and so clearly, (coughs) Paul had to sound the alarm, slide down the theological bat pole, run to the theological batmobile, and write this letter to try to turn the ship around. And so over the next few months, we're going to dig into it uh, a verse at a time, and today we're going to tackle the first eight verses. Let me tell you kind of where we're going. Uh, There's two parts to this section of text. There's uh, the first couple of verses, one and two, that are a greeting, but they're not just any greeting. We'll talk about that. And then there's the thanksgiving in verses three through eight uh, that actually tells us a great deal. And so how I want to do this, usually when I jump into a book, I'll just kind of give you a thematic overview and treat the first couple of verses, but I don't want to do that this time because of the nature of the material. So we're going to tackle all eight, and we got our work cut out for us. So let's jump in right here in verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Now, let's talk about who we're talking about here. First is Paul. We'll say more about him in a moment, but as I said, uh, or let me add to what I said before, he's probably the second most important Christian behind Christ himself. He went from Christian killer to a true encounter with the real Jesus to Christian maker in the sense of propagating the gospel. And look how he describes himself there, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That word apostle means sent one missionary, authorized spokesman, and spiritual authority. And the reason he's pointing that out is because there were so many ridiculous teachers in that day, some of them purveying all that nonsense I just gave you at the beginning, but then others (coughs) that were sort of preaching Jesus, but certainly not the whole story, and certainly not with the authority that Paul had. So he wants to point out to them, This is who I am. And also that next phrase, look at that, by the will of God. And so it's important for him to communicate to them, listen, I am not self-appointed. I did not 
you know, uh, get ordained on the internet from the ancient world, and now I'm here to preach the false gospel to you. Uh, he was <laughs> given this authority by God, and he wants them to know it. Now, when you think about Paul, my guess is it pulls up a lot of little files in your mind. If you grew up in church, you got some guy, probably got a black beard. He uh, potentially falls off a horse and maybe what you were taught. There was a blinding light, flannel graph story. It's pretty amazing. Uh, but here's what I want you to know about Paul. Above all the, or maybe not above, but alongside all the other things you may already know, it's this principle, that real change is possible through the gospel. Real change is possible through the gospel. And here's why this is important. Because we always think about Paul the hero, and we often forget Paul the zero. And if you really go through his life, now I'm not going to tell you everything we could say, but let me tell you a couple things. When we first meet this guy, it's not in Acts chapter 9, it's in Acts chapter 7. And he is holding the coats for a group of people to kill the first Christian martyr named Stephen. And then when you fast forward just a little bit, uh, in Acts chapter 9, we find out that he was, at one point in his life, this is a direct quote, breathing out murderous threats against anyone who followed Jesus, and he hated them so much that he would go from town to town to town to try to exterminate Christians. Now, there's some ideas that I don't like, but I'm not going from town to town to try to kill people that believe those ideas. Maybe I'm just not committed enough, but uh, that's a joke, by the way. You don't have to worry that your pastor is breathing out murderous threats. But uh, Paul was a real piece of work before he met Jesus. But when he did meet Jesus, he was radically changed. He went from Christian killer to Christian proclaimer, and then... 2 Corinthians 11, he endured countless beatings, often near death, three times beaten with rods. He was once stoned, and we're not talking about going out behind the high school here. We're talking about people trying to kill you with big rocks. He was three times shipwrecked. He was in danger of people, elements, sleepless, hungry, stressed out, the whole nine yards. And that is all because God changed him through the gospel. And the reason I want to make hay on this today is some of us need to hear that. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, you need to know that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you are not worse than Paul. You are not beyond the hope of the gospel. And you are not here by any accident today, and whatever you brought in here, God can change you. And that is not just preacher speak, because that's what preachers ought to say. That's the Bible truth. If he can change Paul, he can change you. There is hope for you no matter what you bring in here. Second thing, if you're here and you're a Christian, it is easy to believe that whatever you are struggling with, whether it's public or private, that you're beyond hope. I guarantee you, you're not worse than Paul. And if God can do a redemptive, transformative work in, your, in his life, he can do it in your life. And so when we think about Paul, you need to think about missionary extraordinaire, human author on the human end of things in the New Testament uh, of so many letters. You need to think about gospel proclaimer, spiritual 
rock star, but you also need to think about hope and redemption. And we need to think about that as we work through <coughs> this book. Now, that's not all. <coughs> Look at this. He also mentions that there's another guy with him, and Timothy, our brother. So if we think about Paul and we think about real changes possible through the gospel, when we think about Tim- Timothy, we need to think about this. Real help is needed to spread the gospel. Real help is needed to spread the gospel. Now, we don't know as much about Timothy as we know about Paul. <coughs> but what we do know is that he had some problems of his own. You don't learn this in Colossians. You learn this later. But he could be kind of frail. He had something apparently wrong with his stomach. And uh, he could get frayed. And none of those things, be they physical or spiritual maladies, disqualified him from helping Paul carry the most important message in the history of the world. So some of you who are here today, I definitely put myself in this category. Uh, you, you get afraid about things. Your body seems to not work right all the time. Listen, there's hope for people like me. There's hope for people like you, and God wants to use you to share the gospel, spread the gospel, help other missionaries. You can be somebody's Timothy to their Paul, so don't let the devil lie to you. Also, I think this reminds us we need to be uh, helpers of those that are out there doing the work. That's part of why we get together as a church. That's why you don't just sit at home and never hang around other Christians The Christian life may be personal, but it is not private. You have a relationship with Jesus, but you also have a relationship with Jesus' people. And Paul and Timothy, this dynamic duo working together, reminds us of that. Now, who's he talking to here? He's talking about to the saints, or to the saints and faithful brothers, in Christ at Colossae. Now, let's talk about this real quick. I won't ask for a show of hands, but if you grew up Catholic, when I say the word saints, you got something that comes to mind, right? You've got uh, some group of Christians. They're kind of like the Christian Avengers. Uh, You know, they might be responsible for some miracles or not. We'll see. Uh, But then on top of that, people pray to them, ask for their help, little, little, little team up. And I will tell you, Uh, That is not what Paul is talking about here. The saints to which he is referring are any men and women, boys and girls that authentically have come to Christ, and they, that's what we are. I mean, we all are. We've been set apart for the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel. And this would have been very important to these Colossians. Because remember all that nonsense that I gave at the beginning of the message? These people would have been inundated by that least affected by it, and it would have skewed their thinking a little bit on, on what they really were and who can I trust and what is my identity and all this. So Paul is saying to them, you are saints. That's who you are. And beyond that, you are faithful brothers. Now, let's just be clear in our modern context. He's not giving the shaft to women here. He's not writing this letter just to men. This is an inclusive term uh, that he's talking about the whole crew there. And he's saying, listen, you guys have been faithful to the message of Jesus in the midst of all this ridiculousness that you're having to deal with. But when you take all that together, oh, and one last thing, and then I'll give you this principle. And then watch this. This is actually really important. He says they are in Christ at Colossae. Now, if you 
are comfortable with circling something in your Bible, you ought to circle that. In Christ at Colossae, because what that shows us is, next principle, <coughs> followers of Jesus have new identities and two addresses. Followers of Jesus have two identities and two addresses. So when you meet Jesus, old-timey people talk about being born again. They are not playing. You are born again. You get a new identity. And the way I like to talk about it here is that the truest thing about you is now who you are in Christ. It's not where you live. It's not where your kids go to school. It's not how much money is or isn't in your bank account. It's who you are in Jesus. That is your permanent residence spiritually. But then on top of that, you do have a physical address in this world. For them, it was in Christ, in Colossae. In Colossae, of course, uh, it was a city. It was in the Roman province of Asia, about uh, 100 miles from Ephesus, and it would be in modern-day Turkey. And with that came all the baggage that we were just talking about. That was part of their trouble. And I'll tell you what, that encourages me, and here's why. You may not be like this, but I need this. Sometimes I get aggravated about being born and living during this time period. I just, sometimes I wish. I mean, apparently I made it without the internet, at least for a few years. And then now that I have the internet, there's all this trouble that seems to find me. I cannot get away from somebody on some channel yelling at me about how the world is falling apart or getting targeted advertising telling me that I need to buy something. Okay? So there were, but here's the thing. If God wanted me to be born at some other time of history, I would have been born at some other time of history. If he wanted me to be somewhere else other than Franklin, Tennessee in 2022, I would be somewhere else other than Franklin, Tennessee in 2022. Acts 17 tells us that. God is sovereign over our times, our places, our people, the whole deal. So what I need to do is I need to Stop complaining about my historical moment, and I need to get focused and stay on track. And here's what I bet. I am not alone in what I just said. Is this a frustrating time to be alive? You better believe it. But this is the address that God put me. And this is the address in the time that God put you. And so we have the opportunity and responsibility, just like these Christians did, to be in Christ and operate out of that identity and also in our city, in our moment. Now, what does that mean for us to be in our Colossae, so to speak? I live in Franklin. Some of you live in Franklin. Some of you live in Thompson Station. Some of you live in Columbia. Some of you live in Chapel Hill. So I'm just going to call it Williamson County. So we are in Christ in Williamson County in 2022. And so we have unique trials and troubles and also a ton of blessings. A lot of great things about being alive now. A lot of great things of living here right now. But it's all mixed up together. 
And in the same way that Paul prophetically addressed them in their moment, in their place, with all their trials and troubles and successes, he is doing the same thing for us today. And he's going to do that for us over the next few weeks and months because that is the power of the word. It is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we need to have ears to hear what he says to them. And let me ask you these two questions based on this principle. Number one, do you know you have a new identity? Number two, are you operating out of that new identity? And here's the way that gets answered. Sometimes that's true for all of us. But what I want to put before us this morning is a reminder to operate out of that identity as much as we can. I tell you this, it'll lead to a lot less anxiety. It'll lead to a lot less overspending. It'll lead to a lot less relational drama. It'll lead to less problems in your marriage, though not zero. If we can live in this new identity and repent and get back on track when we don't, boy, it's going to help. And also, last question on this one, are we living out of the right address? Because part of what it means to be in Williamson County at this time is that it is a blessing and there is brokenness. It will never not be that way. So I might pine for whatever generation that I, back to the 80s, right? Like I watch Stranger Things and I'm like, this is like a teleport back to my childhood, you know? And I'm in there on my Radio Shack radio talking to my friends, you know? If you haven't seen what I'm talking about, then you really thought I've lost my mind. But pine all I want, this is where I am. And this is where you are. And so we need to be thankful for its blessings and we need to minister to its brokenness. That's how we live in Christ in Williamson County. And let me tell you something. The Lord is with us. The Lord is helping us. The Lord is going to help us. And if he can get these Colossian Christians through the nonsense that we started with and get them to heaven and they make such a difference along the way, hey, we're going to be all right. We need to trust the Lord and lean in and see what only God can do. Now, let's look at verse 2. <coughs> grace and peace to you, or grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, you could preach a whole sermon just on that, but we're moving quicker today. So, grace is what you think it is. The best way I have uh, learned to understand this is it is, is an acronym. It is God's riches at Christ's expense. And when he couples that with peace, that's a word that denotes wholeness or soundness. And he's bringing together these two very heavy theological ideas. And it's not just a throwaway sentence. This is not just a, in, a, you know, redneck colloquialism. It is not just, hey, y'all, how you doing? He is saying something theologically by saying grace to you and peace. He's he's communicating to them deep theology in those words. But then also, he couples it with this phrase, which is not inconsequential either. Look at this, from God our Father. And remember, that's important, and we'll see this later as the book develops. They need to know who the God of the Bible is. 
Because what they were being taught on the daily from these false teachers was something they were calling God, most likely, but it was not the God of the Bible. And so he needs to tell them grace and peace comes from God, your Father, not this fake God out there. And so when he gets into <coughs> verse 3 and following here, this become, he, he kind of o- opens the flower a little more. We always thank God, and then look at this specificity. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. So the fact that he goes to the extent of saying, God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's doing two things. He is communicating again the God of the Bible, and if you see something repeated in Scripture, what is they trying to, they're trying to show you? It's emphasis. It's emphatic. He wants them to understand this. And then when he couples that with Father of Lord Jesus Christ, he is setting Jesus apart, not as a separate God, not as just some other random teacher that they got there in Colossae that's going to give them nonsense, but he's showing the connection between God and Jesus, and that really matters. It really matters in this book. It really matters because they were being taught false things about Jesus. But it also really matters because some would say, and you'll see this as the book unfolds, <coughs> that the, the biggest theme in Colossians is the supremacy of Christ. And when you see that against the backdrop of all this other stuff where Jesus was, you know, whatever, it makes a lot more sense. And when he also says here, (coughs) look at verse 4, the faith in Jesus Christ, he's talking about the sphere in which their their faith operates. So he's basically saying this, if you you want a picture for your mind. Your faith needs to be and is anchored in Christ Jesus. Anchored in Christ Jesus. And that is important for them, that's important for us, that is important for all people at all times everywhere. And that leads us to our next principle here, and that is that when it comes to spirituality, it is very important to define the teams. It is very important to define the teams. And and here's why I want to expound on this just a little bit. In our day... Because there is so much tumult, there is a temptation for Christians to flatten out doctrinal truth to the point that statements like this get made. Love matters. Doctrine divides. Okay? No, love matters. It does. And doctrine can be divisive. It can. But that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about whether or not everybody agrees on baptism or the end times or something like that. What I'm talking about is what you believe about Jesus and what you believe about how men and women and boys and girls are made right with God, that matters. And that's what's at stake here in Colossae. And that's what's at stake here with this idea about Jesus. Because if you start preaching that Jesus wasn't God or you start preaching that Jesus is only sort of God, or you start preaching Jesus was sinful, there's all kinds of crazy ideas there at work in uh, Colossae, 
then you are in essence preaching another gospel. So for Paul to make these statements, the way he makes them, it is not accidental. God the Father, faith in Christ Jesus, your faith needs to be anchored in Christ Jesus, and so on and so forth. So let me hit the pause button here and ask you two questions. Number one, is your faith anchored in Christ? We don't make any assumptions in this church. Most people, uh, there was a section of my life where I believed what I'm about to say. Most people at some point in their journey will believe that, that basically getting to heaven is about doing good stuff. And that if you do enough good stuff and that outweighs your bad stuff, well, God's going to put you on the scale and that's going to get you in. That is not true. The only way people get to heaven is through taking all their bad stuff and sliding it over to Jesus and saying, I can't do anything about this, but I hear that you can, and I hear that you died for this bad stuff, and I need you to forgive me and count all of your good stuff on top of my bad stuff and save me. That's how people become Christians. So let me ask you again. Is your faith anchored in Christ? Or is it in your own self-effort? Because if it isn't anchored in Jesus, friend, let today be the day of salvation. God wants to save you. And in just a bit, when the rest of us take communion, you hold off, but you take Christ, and let's talk about it. All right, second question. If your faith is anchored in Christ, where has it not been this week? Because this is the muddy mess that we all are. We're following Jesus. Okay, now we wandered off. We're following Jesus, and then I got distracted. We're following Jesus, and then that guy said something really awful, and I punched him in the head. Okay, uh, you know, like that's who we are. Hopefully not the punching. Apparently I'm like, I woke up and chose violence today. That's like my <laughs> second reference. <laughs> Struggling. But you get what I'm saying. We, we are a mess. And so what I hope that this passage does for us, what I hope that all these passages do for us, is that it shortens the distance between our falling down and our running back to Jesus. That's what I hope. That's one of the, the, the desired effects that I have from this. So if your faith is anchored in Christ, let that pull you in more quickly this week. Final question on this, so I guess I have a third one. When it comes to defining these teams and talking to people who are on, let's call it, other teams, do you know how to do it? And if not, how can we help you? Because in this world of all kinds of confusion and complexity and so on and so forth, we do not assume that people know how to get into these issues with people. We do not assume that people know how to share the gospel with a Mormon or with a Jehovah's Witness or with a Muslim. We don't assume those things. So if you need help in any of those areas, we have some effective evangelists that can help you. We just need to know. So file that and let me know. All right, last section of text here. A lot of good news in these last three verses, five through eight. <laughs> because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So what he's talking about here is he's talking about the gospel like a treasure, okay? And then he's going he's gonna to unpack this further. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So that's another way of talking about the gospel, the word of truth, 
which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you. Now, he's not saying that at this point in history that the gospel has gone to every single individual around the world. It's part of what we're still doing today. He's speaking a little bit hyperbolically here. It has gone out, so on and so forth. But what he says here about this, let me just read the rest of it, and then we'll really drill down on this one phrase. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So what he's really saying here, and this is our last principle, is that the gospel is the source of our treasure, and it is alive like a tree. It's the source of our treasure, and it is alive like a tree. Now, go back and look at that phrase there. It says, it is bearing fruit and growing. One commentator I uh, consulted on this, it says this phrase, bearing fruit, <coughs> excuse me, points to what he called an inward energy of the gospel. So it's almost like if you've got any trees in your yard, uh, like a peach tree, Right? You see leaves grow. You see eventually the peaches come off. Hopefully you can eat them. Uh, but there's all kinds of business going on under the surface there that is making that happen. There is an inward energy to all this, and it is powerful and transformative. And that's what he's saying about the gospel, that it takes root in you individually. It takes root in your spiritual community, and it takes root and bears fruit in your lives, in the good that you're able to do, in your spheres of influence, in the sharing of the gospel, in the, the good you do, in the sharing of the gospel you do as a church. It is bearing fruit around the world and throughout history. And so a couple things we need to think about here. This is why we are always talking about the gospel here at this church. It's not because myself and David and Aaron and others, we can't find anything else to talk about. No, we got plenty to talk about. It's because the gospel is alive. All the peaches of obedience and justice and service to the poor and all those things that, that we also care about, they are fruit from the root of the gospel. They are not the gospel. The truth about Jesus is the gospel. But it bears fruit in all these different ways, and that is what he wants them to know, and that's what he wants us to know. So let me ask you a question. When was the last time you thought about the intrinsic power, the fruit-bearing power of the gospel in your life? Hopefully it was this morning. But if not, let me tell you how I know the devil works on us. You get ensnared in something. And I mean, you just pick something. I mean, it could be looking at things on the internet that you shouldn't be. It could be some pattern of yelling at your kids or cheating on your boss or, I mean, whatever. I mean, you just pick any kind of ensnaring sin. The way that works is it covers up this truth. Now, it doesn't cover it up in a true ontological sense, but it covers it up in a practical sense. 
and it pushes you further and further and further, the more down the rabbit hole you go, from what you need to get out of that pit. And so the Lord gives us messages like this. He reminds us of the power of the gospel to say to us, if we're in some kind of ensnaring pit, there is a ladder out of this. And the ladder out of this is the gospel bearing fruit in my life. It's gospel people speaking truth to my life. It's gospel systems helping me avoid falling into this hole again. The gospel has an intrinsic power to help us. And here's the good news. It's not just for people that are deeply ensnared in sin. <laughs> it's for anybody who needs it. So whatever your struggle is today, be it big or small, the resources you need are available to you in Christ. Isn't that good news? That you can get what you need from Jesus? Paul believed that. I believe that. And I believe you believe that too. So when we see today's passage, it is not simply a greeting. It is an invitation. It is an invitation to reflect, to think, to be helped by all of these deep theological truths. And it is an invitation to glory in the greatness of Jesus for who He is and what He's done. And it is an opportunity to be thankful for our new identity, for our new address. It is to be thankful that our faith can be and is anchored in Jesus. And it is an invitation from Jesus to go to Him with whatever needs we have. So here's what I want to close with today. Two questions. Number one. Which of these truths, maybe it's more than one, but which of these truths is the Lord resting the most heavily upon you today? And second, what do you need to do in response? For some of us, it's simply just to receive it. It's just to receive the blessing of the Word of God and be reminded of these truths. For others of us, it's to take a bold step and climb on that intrinsically powered ladder out of the hole that you're in. For others, it could be just informing you of something that you didn't know, that now you know theologically. But whatever it is, let's take that thing, those things, to the Lord right now, and let's pray and ask for what only God can do in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for drawing us together this morning. We thank you for leading us to the book of Colossians. We pray that you would cause this word that we've heard today to bear much fruit. May we see many peaches of obedience and service happen in the next seven days. May we see people take a step toward getting freed from whatever ensnaring sin that they're caught up in. May we see that in the next seven days. 
Lord, may we see people who came in here discouraged this morning be encouraged to keep going. May you do that for your glory and for our good. Lord, we thank you for this time that we've had. We pray for more time like it in the future. We pray all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.